Um, my name is Gareth, and um, I formed a, a sort of a company called No Contact Help. So if you go to nocontacthelp.com, you'll find, you'll find me and what I'm offering to people. Um, it's a bit, a bit unusual. Um, I've put together um, a sort of a support group um, resources, uh, videos um, for people who are no contact with their families. And um, there are a group of people that are very much forgotten in society, um, very much a silent uh, group. Um, you probably meet many people who are in that situation, but they'll almost never tell you. Um, you know what happened or that they don't have any contact with the family and there are quite a few reasons for that which which I'll get into in this talk um, for that reason um, you know I listen to you know podcasts and interviews and they always say oh tell me about yourself you know introduce yourself where were you born where did you grow up all those kinds of things and I really struggle with that because I can't really say say that because because of my own personal situation. One of the things I've committed to is that I'm not going to talk about any personal interactions that happened with me and my family, any of the issues that actually caused me to go into contact. Um, they're, they're still alive and they're around, and it's not fair for anything that I might reveal to sort of impact their lives and, and cause all kinds of stuff. Um, so there's an awful lot that I can't say. Um, so, so I thought what I would do, instead of talking about why people go no contact, I'll allude a little bit to it, but I, I won't do any of my personal story. Um, I'm more interested in actually helping people kind of get out of that situation. Their life has fallen apart. Everything is just, just gone. Your support network is gone. Okay, well, what do you do next? And um, so that's really um, what I'm focused on doing is help people like that. So what I can reveal is that um, in 2011, um, we were staying on a campsite in Lake Country um, myself, my wife, um, my two children, and two cats who we had um, bought over at great expense from the UK, uh, from where we lived. Um, so we're there on the campsite. We had in a tent uh, with a broken down camper van, pretty old, and just kept you know breaking down on us. Um, and just a few days before. We'd lived in a beautiful five-bedroomed house um, with amazing views, um, hundreds of acres that we could walk on, um, at in, uh, river valley, waterfalls, ancient woodlands, uh, uh, mountains, one of the most beautiful places on the planet and a place that I've always loved and uh, I've always wanted to live there. And um, I actually moved from Canada to this place to live there in 2002 uh, with my family 
and, and we spent about nine years living there and, and living the life, the country life, and uh, uh, loved it, loved everything uh, about it. Um, but my family had other other ideas. <laughs> that's, that's as much as I'll say. So there we were. Now, the one thing about going no contact, um, whether the family kicks you out and, uh, or whether you leave by yourself, is you're going to lose everybody. Um, it's not just um, your, your siblings, your parents. Um, you're going to lose your cousins. You're going to lose any friends that they talk to about you. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that, um, well, what I'll do is I'll illustrate um, a typical scenario. And uh, it's certainly not my, my story, but it's a story that um, kind of explains to people who have never been in a situation, have grown up in wonderful families, um, how, how things develop. Okay, so in this hypothetical story, um, you've got a family, you've got a father who's very abusive, very violent, and um, sexually abuses his daughter. Um, make sure that she doesn't tell anybody, keeps a secret. This happens when she's really young. She doesn't tell anybody. Eventually, she, she'll tell, she, she does tell someone, maybe a sister, maybe, maybe her mother. A lot of the time, what will happen if the father is very powerful and very controlling is that she will not be believed. And um, when it leaks out, when it's revealed her story to other people in the family, um, they will basically pile on her, um, tell her that she's making it up, how, how dare she do this, they've got a wonderful father and, and everything else. There will be absolutely no support. And this situation happens, happens a lot. Um, if somebody decides in the family to support her, they will also be ostracized and then uh, scapegoated and uh, all kinds of other sort of things, really unpleasant things start to happen. Um, so if you're in this situation and no one believes you, it actually happened, what do you do? Um, there, there is nothing you can do except to leave. Um, and when you leave, when this person leaves, um, people are going to ask, you know, the, the rest of the family, um, well, where, where did so-and-so go? You know, where, where's your daughter gone? Where's your sister gone? And they're not going to say, oh, well, you know, you know, she said that this happened. They're just going to smear her and they're going to destroy her reputation so that no one else will give her any credibility to her story. And um, that's why a smear campaign starts. And a smear campaign always, always, always happens when someone leaves their family and goes no contact. And the reason is to make sure you have zero credibility and no one will listen to anything that you say. And if, say, there's uh, five other people in your family 
and you're the person that's left, those five people are all going to tell the same story to all the cousins, all the aunties, all the uncles, all the friends in, in the area, maybe depending on how many people they decide to reveal the story to, they'll spread like wildfire. And um, you'll find out um, who your true friends are. Uh, in my case, out of probably a um, hundred relations, there were two people that maintained contact with me. And they actually dropped off after two years. And I don't know what was actually being said about me but, uh, and my family, but I'm pretty sure that the stories got pretty, pretty, pretty huge, pretty large to be able to make sure that I was completely discredited. So that's kind of why that happens. Now, in, in many cases when someone has a big trauma, um, they still have a support network around them to help them. Um, they have family, they have friends. When someone is sort of kicked out of the family or, or leased by their own volition and goes no contact, um, generally they'll lose almost their entire support network. Uh, the only people they'll keep are friends who know absolutely who have no contact themselves with any of their, their family or extended group. Um, social media is terrible because Facebook just triangulates so one person knows another and knows another and stories will spread like wildfire and, you know, so you kind of have to leave social media and get out from that. And um, so that's really the, what, what, I'm, what I'm setting up now is what I needed and uh, the rest of us and my family needed back in 2011, which was somewhere to go to, someone to talk to who understood what happened, had been there themselves and would say, yeah, I get it. I listen to you. I validate your experience and um, let's, let's help you. So I didn't have that support. And um, so what did we do? Um, well, we were, we were lucky and we found um, a superb counselor. And uh, my wife and I um, found this counselor. <laughs> I still remember our first meeting we go in and it suddenly went us, whoa, all this happened. <laughs> he just sat there while, you know, an hour of us just, you know, <laughs> finally being able to tell our story to someone um, who wouldn't take sides and stuff. And uh, luckily he did agree to see us again. And um, so we went back again and, oh, probably took about seven years of counseling to really examine all the issues and sort of really try to get to the bottom of, okay, why did this happen? What were the reasons? Um, what was our role in it? What was my role in it? What was their role in it? Um, there's, there's a, um, I, I know for myself, I did a lot of, of research, um, you know, diving into the internet and onto YouTube. And there's a lot of videos out there. Um, that can 
you, you can kind of kind of understand what happens in dysfunctional families, uh, toxic families. Oh, okay, this this behavior by a parent creates this behavior in the children, and the children will fight each other because of what the parent is doing to them. And so that kind of knowledge really helps a lot. Um, one of the things that I did, um, it's uh, what's always been important to me is is um, is laughter, is a sense of humor. So I was just I become obsessed with watching anything that would make me laugh. So whether they were comics or they were funny movies or you know Billy Connolly or some of the um, great sort of. Um, you know, friends and stuff has a lot of laughter and everything explores issues. Um, so I really got to enjoy that. And um, uh, uh, Brené Brown has talked a lot about shame, and shame is one of the biggest parts of this whole thing. Um, and you've got shame because you weren't good enough. You obviously screwed up because otherwise, why would why would people? Why would your family turn on you? They know you better than anyone. So you must have been, you know, awful. And um, one, of the th one of the ways I think you can fight shame is by actually bringing out stories that are kind of embarrassing and just telling them in public and just putting it out there. So I've got a story that's... Um, Pretty embarrassing, and I'm going to share it for that reason, that, that sort of shame thing, and just get over it. And so um, I was, uh, I'm a really keen swimmer, and um, for many years, um, my favorite stroke was butterfly. And so butterfly is this undulating stroke, and you go up and down, up and down uh, through the waves. It's, it's beautiful to watch a great butterfly swimmer. And um, so I practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. And uh, I was pretty pleased with myself. I thought I was really good. And um, it's that pride, that pride that like, that comes before the fall. So, so I'm, I'm in this pool and I'm swimming doing my butterfly. I've got, got fins on to make it easier. So I'm doing lengths and lengths and lengths where, let's see if I can get that word, up and down, up and down, up and down. Your bottom rises up and your shoulders rise up. It's quite beautiful to watch it. And um, so I was doing this and the lifeguard came over when I got to the end of the lane. And uh, she, she went to speak to me and I thought. <laughs> so my thoughts were, oh my God, she is so impressed by what a brilliant swimmer I am. And she is just going to say, oh, your butterfly is amazing. And what she actually said is, is sir, do you realize that your swimsuit is split at the back? And uh, every time your bottom is rising above the, above the water, you can see your whole bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just... Uh, so basically, that, that was the end of my session. I got out, I kind of walked to the changing room, sort of hand behind, holding my swimsuit together. And I didn't go back to that pool for six weeks. <laughs> oh, bye. But, um, yeah, so I sort of, the best thing that can happen is, is, is if you can connect. If you can con 
form a connection with people that that won't judge you and, and know what happens. And the ideal thing is if you can meet in person with a support group of, of people who have all been in that situation. There's a facilitator um, who sort of helps guide everyone to tell their story and share experiences, and you all support each other to get through. And that's something I'm really hoping to set up in Kelowna. This, um, this COVID has meant that uh, can't happen in person at the moment. But I'm also looking to set up uh, as a Zoom, uh, as an online video group for anyone around the world really, who's in the same situation or has been in the same situation and just wants to talk to others who, who have been there, who know what it's like. And I'm looking to facilitate and set up groups for this. And um, so when you've got no family, I'll come back to that sort of year there. You actually have a great opportunity to build a brand new family. And by choosing people that you want in your life, and um, you can choose, I, I would say, choose to have um, some older people in your life, choose to have people your own age. Um, try, try and find people that really like you, that you just kind of respond to and everything. There, there's one bit of advice that I think is really key, and that is that you don't share your personal story um, with, with these friends. And the reason I say that is uh, what I've found from experience is the, the only people who can understand you are people who have also had um, dysfunctional families and a very similar situation. Um, They've experienced scapegoating, their boundaries being constantly flattened, invalidation, gaslighting, smear campaigns. They get it and they understand you. Um, those lucky people that have come from functional families just can't understand. They, they, they look at, well, you know, no smoke without fire. And uh, if his whole family and all these other people and all those people, maybe there's like a hundred people saying bad things about you. They must be right because it's numbers, you know, like one person saying this and hundreds saying that. And so you, you just can't sort of share with that. that. That's why I think it's so important. That's why the, um, the no contact help is so important because it can, you can separate the two. You can keep your personal stories and your trauma because it's going to take seven, eight, nine years to really work through it. I'm hoping that the service I'm offering is going to make it much faster than it was for me because I didn't really know anyone in a similar situation. And um, so that's my big hope for this. Um, let me see. Yeah, healthy people, if you reveal their stories, they won't want you around because you make them uneasy. Um, unfortunately, though, predatory people love to latch onto someone that's got uh, trauma and personal trauma. Uh, these are your narcissists, your sort of um, your borderline personality people, sociopaths. They're, they're like, oh, great. Now, I can exploit this person for my own needs. And that's another reason why you can't share your story. And um, not everyone should, should, should he hear your personal story. I, I think 
there are some things that you can have great relationships with people without revealing so much. And maybe, maybe I'm saying that as a man, um, because certainly with men, if we share too much, you know, if we overshare, then we'll find friendships sort of, you know, they're back in because or, you know, we're guys, you know, let's, you know, we talk about sports and hockey and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think, I think it is different for women. I, I know my wife was, was able to share stories with some people and uh, did get sort of support and connection that way. Um, what did I find out over the 10 years? Um, eventually you get to acceptance. And one of the things is um, I, w I waited for years for, for that phone call, that, that email, that letter saying, whoa, Gareth, sorry. I don't know what happened. We all went a bit crazy. Uh, we are really unfair to you. Um, let's try and put this right. You know, what can we do to put it right? Let's, let's start a dialogue. I thought that would happen. It never did. And I realize now that it never will. And in the vast majority of cases, it never will. And you have to give up on them ever apologizing because they won't. Why should they acknowledge what they did? Why should they change? It works for them. It makes it really easy to have a family trash can that they can kick out. There, everything that's wrong in the family is that person's fault. So why would anyone go against that? It's not in their best interest. And a really important thing to remember, if your happiness depends on others changing, you're always going to be unhappy. And that's one thing I finally came to realize and accept. Um, one of the things you can do when things are really difficult is take charge of what you can control. Um, you, you can't control what other people do to you. You can only control how you react to it. And um, other things you can control is be the best person you can be, the best version of you that you can be. So sort out your diet, you know, eat clean, um, good food and exercise. Exercise, it's a way that you can get stress out of your body. Uh, for me, it's essential for getting stress out of my body is to exercise, exercise, exercise. And um, I did that as a kid. I, I ran everywhere and I did every sport you could think of. Um, one good thing with that is um, maybe through your exercising, you're doing a team sport and uh, you make friends through that and uh, that you can start building some kind of support friendship group there. Um, another thing is, um, uh, Hippocrates said 2000 years ago in ancient Greece that everything starts in the gut. So a healthy gut is a healthy body. And it's very, very interesting. When I sort of really improved my diet, I, I always had all kinds of um, gut issues and stuff. And um, suddenly I was, I was, one day I'd been eating really clean for a long time. And I just felt this warmth and this sort of satisfaction and goodness and power just coming out of my stomach and it just radiated and I was walking around feeling on top of the world feeling like I was Superman and it was 
it comes from the gut. They've actually done some research showing that um, in mental health, if someone has a really healthy gut, they actually improve a lot better. So one of the other things I want to say is um, when a, you're made to feel helpless um, in these families uh, through the scapegoating and gaslighting and validation or everything else, you're made to feel that you don't matter in the world, everything you do is wrong and you're, you're just trash. Um, one of the best ways to so, so, so what you need to do is actually develop a sense or of, I matter in the world, I matter to other people. I hear, I, I make a difference, I make a difference. So um, can you add value? Can you do something, can you volunteer? Can you help the homeless, um, soup kitchen? Can you do other kinds of volunteering? Um, could you be a big brother to someone, a big sister to someone? Can you mentor somebody? Is there some way that you can help out someone who's in a difficult situation? And um, they do say that this is one of the best ways to help someone that's really depressed, is getting them to help someone else. And they realize, wow, I matter in the world. I'm, I actually have importance. Um, one of the things I, I got really stuck, um, emotional flashbacks um, are one of the things that um, you go through waves of, oh God, I feel really good. I'm over all of this. And then it comes back. Something will trigger um, some kind of flashback and you're right there to some argument that happened, you know, maybe when you were seven years old and you did something you should have done to your sister or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And those emotional flashbacks, when that happens, you are back to being that seven-year-old kid. You, you react emotionally with the same level of intelligence, emotional intelligence that you had at seven. You're not there as, a, as an adult thinking about it. And um, it, it is a sign that, you know, people say when, when those things happen, it's a sign that your, your subconscious is saying, okay, I'm ready for you to start dealing with this, start healing this. And, um, I, I think there's a lot of validation. There's a lot of truth in that. Um, one of the things I found to help me, I, I was I was getting stuck into this negative loop, just constantly thinking, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life. Uh, for some reason, all I could remember and think about were all the negative things I did. And I was like, well, I must have done something good somewhere, you know, some positive things. So I, I just stumble across this thing, okay, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper all the good things I've done for people. And then I thought, oh, that's okay. Um, now I'm going to write down good things that other people did for me to help me. And I started developing this list and it got longer and longer. And some of the stories are actually really powerful. And there were people that helped me in profound ways that have never met me and I have no idea. What, what an effect they had in my life. And I thought, God, it would be so good to be that person for someone else. And um, so one of the stories I wanted to share, I, I actually told some of these stories at the Balanced Wellbeing Storytelling evening. Two nights, this was about, oh, about two months ago now. The last one that was actually in person before we were all 
shuttered off to home and he had to do it all by Zoom. So um, I told the story about Sarah, which was uh, our wonderful sheepdog that kind of came into our life. And um, just the most, most perfect dog um, you could ever hope to have. Uh, intelligent, beautiful, uh, sensitive, kind, just, just absolutely amazingly. I, I told a funny story there when um, we actually um, we had a pet duck for a while. And this duck actually lived in our house and uh, with the dog. So had a dog, two cats, and a duck living in the house, which got really, really messy because you just can't tolerate a, a duck at all. <laughs> and, uh, and, and how did it happen? Um, there are no ducks or ponds around where we used to live. Um, but Sheila came in one day and she goes, look what I found. And there's this duckling, this beautiful, uh, tiny duckling fitted in the palm of her hand. And she just found it outside. And we, we figured the only way it must have gotten there was to have been dropped by um, a hawk or a buzzard or something like that. And so we, we brought it into the house and um, we, um, we gave, it, um, gave it water. We learned how to give it what it needed. And uh, he padded around the house and uh, the boys would hold him sort of right next to his the ear. And he would like nibble their ears like that. So we called him Nibbler. And uh, he was just uh, just an amazing addition to our life. We, we had him for about a year and he'd go for walks with the, with the dog. And uh, it was just, just something else. And uh, I really treasure those memories. And the kids just, you know, the, the boys remember it so well. And, um, but this story of someone who had a profound in, in influence. Um, well, what happened was um, we went down to Cardiff, which is the capital city, and we took um, Sarah with us, our dog. She was about, um, probably about nine or 10 months old at the time. We had taken her to the local town before, so even though she grew up in the country, she, she did know um, a little bit about, she seemed to be pretty good in towns, to be honest. And um, so we took her down. Um, my wife had, um, had a meeting there, um, which was going to be about two or three hours. And so I drove her down, um, took the dog, and we walked in Cardiff Castle, in, in the grounds of Cardiff Castle. And um, Cardiff City that has these grounds that, um, that about, oh, they're just huge. Um, they're sort of like probably about 10 times the size of Central Park, just this massive area that belonged to the, to the castle. And so I was walking the dog there, we were playing fetch, so I was chase, uh, throwing a stick, uh, she was chasing a stick. And as soon as I turned around and she'd vanished, couldn't find her anywhere. And um, I searched, I searched and searched. Uh, almost the entirety of that park, which took uh, about two, two and a half hours. Um, couldn't find her at all. And so I thought, um, okay, I've got to go to um, meet up with Sheila. It was time to pick up Sheila. And so, so I, I left the park. As I was leaving past the entrance, I, I talked to the, um, the grounds, groundsman there, the entrance keeper. Um, did you see a dog? He said, oh, yeah, two hours ago, this, this uh, sheepdog um, raced past me at uh, top speed. 
and race right, up, right across the road. Now this road is um, one of the busiest uh, roads into Cardiff. Um, it's kind of like Highway 97 in Kelowna, so it's sort of three lanes of traffic each side. It's always completely busy, uh, trucks, cars, everything else. And so my dog raced straight across the street without stopping. And the groundsman said, um, or the gatekeeper said, uh, she's probably dead on the road somewhere. Um, so I kind of looked and uh, I couldn't see her anywhere. So I thought, okay, um, what do I do now? Um, so I met up with Sheila and uh, we looked a bit. Um, it was kind of hopeless, really. So we thought, okay, uh, we'll walk back to the car and then from the car, we'll go to the police station and see if anything's been reported. And then with the car, we could also go to like the RSPCA and, and see if there's been a report of a dog or something. And so we're walking back along Queen Street, which is like this big wide shopping street there. And uh, we get right to the end and um, there's another busy road. And then there was the parking lot that our car was at. Right as we get to the end, um, we see our dog and she was tied up on the cart of, uh, of a homeless man, you know, like a street person. And, um, so, you know, asked, asked him his story, um, you know, how did you find her kind of thing? And he said, well, I called her, she was trying to cross the road and I thought that's a bit dangerous. So he grabbed her, grabbed her leash and tied her to there. And he was, he'd been looking after her for a couple of hours. And he was just about to, um, to you know, they'd actually called, they were about to call the police to come in so that, you know, the dog could do that. And um, if it wasn't for that man, I'm pretty sure we would have lost our dog. And we would have missed out on seven years of just the amazing, just an amazing life that um, she gave us, the companionship and everything. And so I, I don't remember his name. Um, or anything else. I, I thanked him profusely at the time. And um, that that's just one of these generosity stories. And you think, oh my God, you know, somebody made a profound difference. And um, that was really cool. And I had so many other stories like that. And they sort of just add up and add up and add up. And uh, it was kind of a, a flick to switch for me. Um, after I'd, I'd done an exercise, I no longer had these negative thoughts because I, I realized that I had value and I had value to others in what I had done for them and I had value because of what other people had done, done for me. And it's like this web and we kind of help each other and stuff and look after each other's karma. And, and it's just really cool. Um, So another thing I'm going to share is one of the favorite things ever did with my family. Um, another thing you can do while you're trying to sort through your trauma is try and have amazing experiences, like powerful experiences in nature. And the most powerful experience you can ever have is to witness a solar eclipse. And um, we did that, um, was it 2017? Yeah. So Monday, August 17th, 2017, uh, you couldn't see it from Kelowna. Um, the only place you could see a total eclipse was, uh, for us, was Oregon, was our closest place. Um, it was arcing across 
the United States sort of coming across in Oregon and then arcing down, probably coming out near Texas or, or somewhere like Florida or something like that. And um, I said, I've got to see this. It's been one of my lifetime ambitions. And it's on my bucket list to see a solar eclipse. So packed up the kids, packed up uh, my wife, and uh, we drove down there. And uh, beautiful country, Washington State and um, Oregon. And we got to see the dry falls um, in Washington State, which we didn't even know about, uh, near the Grand Coulee Dam, which is one of the most spectacular landscapes on the planet. And um, so we get down to Oregon, and uh, we just... Our goal was to drive far enough south so we got into the cone of totality, where it goes completely black and the sun is completely covered. And it's only about nine miles wide. And if you're outside it, you're not going to see a total eclipse. The sun's going to be too bright for you to even look at it. So there was quite a bit of stress that day, like, okay, we've got to get down because the traffic got heavier and heavier and heavier. And eventually we found somewhere we pulled over on the side of the road and waited for it. And um, it's just something that I will always remember my whole life. And, um, oh, how can I, there's so many things that you take for granted in this world that are completely upended during the solar eclipse. And one of them is that um, wind always comes from one direction. So you're facing the wind, it's coming in, it's hitting your face or whatever. Wind goes from hot to cold. So it always comes from one direction. That is something that has happened your whole life, every single day. Um, that doesn't happen during a solar eclipse. So what happens is as the, um, the moon disk covers the sun, it goes dark, and that part of the ground cools down. And so what happens then is that, because that's a circular patch of ground that moves across, uh, across the country, is wind then comes in from every single direction to hit you. So from 360 degrees, you got wind coming in at you. And it made the hairs go up on, it, it was just, you know, raised my hat. It was so strange. Other things that happened is just before um, the sun is covered, this quality of light changes to, it's almost like one of these Instagram filters you get, it's, it's high contrasting. It's so strange when you see it. You can kind of see strange shadows, light can ripple across the landscape. And then um, the sky becomes like a dark sapphire blue. I, I started off um, actually looking away from the sun and doing circle watching around, because you get a rainbow that happens all the way around. Well, not, not a rainbow, a sunset. That's what I meant to say. Sunset happens all the way around you, 360 degrees. So I was looking around and I was absolutely amazed. My wife and the boys had just started, they were facing the sun and they, and they were going like, wow, look at that, that's so cool, dad, look. So I turned around and um, so all of these other experiences are happening. And then you look up at the sky. And you look up at the sun, and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. It, there's this, you see the sun's corona, the atmosphere, and um, because the moon covers it over completely, and so you get to see the atmosphere the sun has, which usually is, in, in, is invisible to you. And it's this silvery, 
blanket kind of looks like woven platinum and it just shimmers and moves and it doesn't make a sound but it's like it's crackling and it's, it's just like an electricity kind of thing absolutely absolutely mind-blowing and it just stood there you know people were gasping and stuff and it was two minutes and nine seconds that totality and um absolutely the most profound moment I've had in my life, really. Um, just towards the end, uh, the moon loop moves a little bit more and you get a diamond ring. And so a little bit of the sun comes through and it, and it almost looks like a diamond ring was sitting. And then that's the last thing you can see because then the sun moves and it becomes really bright. And what a profound experience and something that a gift that I, I could give my family and it's something that was just mine. It had nothing to do with all those guys over there who think all these things and say all these things about us, you know. It was ours. It was ours, our experience. Um, so what does success look and feel like? Um, you will never, ever... Um, there'll always be a hole in your heart that your family, the people you were raised with, you've only, you spent all your formative years with, they're ripped out. It's as if they've all died. Um, but it's actually worse than if they've all died in hor horrible car crash because they're dead to you and you're dead to them. Um, but they don't want you and they're saying nasty things about you and all that stuff. So the hurt will always be there. You, you can, it'll never go, but you can move on. You can rebuild a life. Um, you can just, it can gradually sink over the years to be a lower thing that you don't think about that much and you can get on. A good sign when you're healing is you're just fed up and tired of the whole thing. You, you no longer want to tell your story to anyone. It shows you a bit come less in, in invested in, in being a victim. But one of the problems with this is you are objectively a victim, but being in a victim mindset doesn't help you move on or, or be strong or, or actually cope with, you know, be, be worthwhile and, and productive in the world. You've got to get out of that victim mindset. And it takes a lot of, lot of hard work to do that. Um, one really good exercise I did, and it took me many years before I could complete it, is try and write three letters to each family member. Don't send them because it'll just, you know, you, you can't break into contact because all kinds of stuff will start up all over again that you didn't bargain for. Write the letter you want to send them saying how you feel about what they did and, and all of that. Then write the letter you want them to send to you. And I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know the full story. I, I can't believe I did this. And it's got, let, let's make amends. That, that kind of thing. Then the third one, which is the most difficult, is write a letter telling the family drama as they see it and what made them see it that way. Be sympathetic and deal with the information they have. So write the letter that they are going to write from their knowledge. Uh, one of the things that happens in, in uh, 
dysfunctional abuse of family is information is carefully meted out and compartmentalized by the, by the abusive parent so that each sibling only knows part of the story and often then obviously told untruths and you know, all, the, all this kind of thing. So try and get into their minds and think, if I had their experience and I had this information, what would I think? And that's actually really powerful because it can give you some sympathy for them. Even if you're never going to speak to them for the rest of your life, if you can feel some sympathy for people that have wronged you, their power over you just disappears. Um, if you're angry at people, they still have control over you. Um, one of the things I struggle with is, is this whole uh, forgiveness issue. Um, I'm kind of suspicious of people who've had horrible experiences and they're like very quickly, you know, oh, I forgive them. And I'm thinking, no, it isn't that easy. You've really got to work hard at it. And the, the, the trap with forgiving people too early is you're not standing up for, for you. Um, if someone has treated you really badly, you need to acknowledge that they have done that and you should be angry about that. And, but you can't stay angry for the rest of your life. So I think at the end, sometimes having some understanding of why they might have done that can help. But at the end, you have to not forgive them for doing what they did um, because that's sort of betraying your, your child who you know, had something happen to them at a young age, you know, being beaten by your father when you're like 11 years old is, is unforgivable. But you can forgive yourself. You didn't bring that on. You didn't deserve that. You didn't do something to make him hit you. You can forgive yourself for that. And, and that's where I, I think forgiveness is, uh, is important. Um, so I've got a choice now. I've got um, another story I can tell, or I can kind of answer questions. So, um, what, uh, what's the thought? Story takes a couple of minutes, or, uh, or I can answer questions. Um, I've got a question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked, um, I really like what you shared, um, really interesting profound stuff and it kind of relates to other healing paths as well i really enjoyed listening to it um yeah i really like the idea that you would create a, a support kind of network for people um yeah i guess my question is how would you how would you get people to know know what you're doing and what you can offer them yeah, that it's um, you've got to get yourself out there, and uh, you know, make videos, share videos, and and tell you tell you. Well, it's just the thing. It's, it's like um, it's kind of the dilemma. It's like, like tell your story, but don't tell your story. You know, like I've said, I'm trying to walk this tightrope between being able to get well known enough to be able to be, be of value and help people. Um, but not be out there sort of revealing family secrets or whatever. And, um, what do you think? People, you know, well, what's he up to? <laughs> I 
I think that's a really good idea. That's walking the path of integrity and yeah, you're able to help and support others then because they realize you're strong enough because you're not going back to your, your story, right? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really and, and, and there's a lot of people out there um, that are, are talking about these kinds of things. Um, um, it's, it can be a bit of a rabbit hole going down into some of these videos. Um, a lot of people are still, you know, angry and, and it comes across in the videos and some of the stuff is helpful and, and some of it you kind of like have to balance it up and think, oh, you know, you're going a bit far with this. And that's why it helps if you've got a really good counsellor that can, you know, you can bring your issues to and say, well, I'm, I'm dealing with this and I've got that happening and uh and they can kind of uh kind of help steer you through that so and i will I, oh, oh sorry carry on oh i'm just saying and, and great to have like this a support group is or a safe space to be and share safe space is the most important thing so i'm working on it and uh hopefully it will be launched soon and uh i'll get over uh, a flood of people wanting to join in and <laughs> sort it all out. Exciting. I think it's really exciting. <laughs> Thanks oh. for sharing all your all right. stories. All right. So, so my funny story, um, I've got five minutes left. So um, uh, one of the things I did uh, was I was a swim teacher. And um, so um, I loved it. Um, it was something that was part-time. It wasn't like a full-time gig, um, but I did it for quite a few years. And I just loved teaching, you know, everything from 18-month um, toddlers to, um, um, to like 17 or 18-year-old kids, uh, mostly like 5, 7, 12, 14-year-olds, those kinds of age groups. I also um, coached with the swim club as well, you know, with adults and, and older people. And... Um, so my story happened with, um, I was in the pool and it's one morning and I was, uh, we had a deep end in the pool and a shallow end and the shallow end, um, my kids were in the, um, the second part. So that was, it was probably a good eight foot deep there. So it, wasn't, it actually wasn't that shallow. So um, I'm standing there and I'm demonstrating to them how to safely enter the pool. Um, first instinct that a kid has is to step forward facing the pool. The problem with that is that if they lean back, they could hit their head on the side of the pool. And when they sort of hit the bottom and come back up, their hands are in front in the water and the safety of the wall is right behind them. So that's, that's not a good situation. So what we teach them to do is turn around and enter the pool looking at the um looking at the side of the pool and so then they can get in and instantly put their hands out and they're on the side of the pool and it's really safe and so i've taught this so many times and um so but you got both feet planted together you move around like this face the pool and then go down um, the problem I did was uh, I demonstrated this one time and I was too close to the edge. So as I demonstrated it, I suddenly fell into the water. So I was 
vertical into the water as I was still speaking. And you put your hand, reach your hands out. The next thing I know, I'm on the bottom of the pool. And uh, I leap up, climb out of the pool, and soak in weather course because it's well over my head. And, and of course, the kids have just lost it. I'm laughing. I look up, and the parents are just in hysterics there. And then I look around, and no one else has seen it happen. So none of the other uh, teachers or, or, or students had seen it happen. Uh, the lifeguard hadn't seen it happen. So I basically stood there and did the whole rest of the lesson for the next hour, soaking wet. And I, like an hour later, someone said, oh, your hair's wet. Why is that? Explain <laughs> 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 what happened. They're like, well, that can't happen. I would have seen it. The lifeguards would have seen it. So it's just one of those things that, my biggest takeaway from everything is if you can keep a sense of humor, it can get you through the worst, most troubling parts. And if you can laugh about yourself, it really helps. And if you can reveal embarrassing stories about yourself, because we all have them. Um, obviously, they kind of need to be a bit funny and not too personal. Um, it helps get, get over this feeling of shame. And shame is that powerful thing that keeps you, keeps you trapped where you are. And um, shame grows in darkness. And there are many people out there who have horrible family situations and they'll never breathe the word of it because they are so ashamed of what happened. And if you can say it, um, you know, obviously, like I've said, don't say it to everybody, say it to people in the, who are in a safe space, they're supportive of you, they kind of know, like a support group that has been there and knows what it's about, is well facilitated, um, or with a counsellor, but you've got to get those shameful things that are buried deep and you want them buried deep, you've got to get them out there and tell them. And I've found that the power of just saying something that you're ashamed of, as soon as you've told that story, it's like it's lost half its part immediately before anybody says anything to you and, and then you explore it. But just the scent, just revealing it makes its power go away. And uh, so, uh, any other questions? <laughs> we got thumbs up here. Um, do, we, do we have time, more time or? Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so, um, nocontacthelp.com is the website. And um, you can sort of register there and send an email to kind of join the support group. Um, it's very much in its early stages. Um, but I do have some um, advice there. And one of the things I'm doing is... Um, I'm trying to build a community. So I feature a lot of the best people working in this kind of field, in this area. I, I've, got a, um, I've got a page there on the best people in, uh, best YouTube channels you can go to for help with this kind of thing. And there are people that are really looking deep into psychology of it. There are people that are more focused on, um, on the family relationships or boundaries or something. So there's a lot of advice there. So um, my aim is to make it like a central resource where I don't try and hog information. I, I'm like, okay, this person really 
is specialised in what in your question, and you know I can I can send you to to, to that person. They can help you that that kind of thing. So there's so many people out there that need help, and um, I just want to feel that I'm making a difference and giving back because uh, it's time. It's time to kind of help help other people out. So that's oh. I don't know, unless there's more questions. I think I'm about done, actually. Shauna, should we uh, should we wrap it up there? Sounds good. Well, that was awesome. Yeah? Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, so we'll wrap up a great... Uh, thank you for sharing your website and stuff so people can track you down. Great. Thank you so much, Shauna. And uh, thanks, Beth and uh, Sheila, for coming on. And uh, anyone else who saw it... Uh, Hope it helped, or, or at least it was entertaining. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right.